Hey, you're listening to Featuring Filmmakers, a podcast where we talk to people in the filmmaking industry about their projects and the creative process behind making them. My name is JJ. And I'm Amanda. And this is Featuring Filmmakers. Rachel Harding is a filmmaker based out of Melbourne, Australia. Primarily an editor, she stepped into directing and producing on Fixed on Fixed. Fixed on Fixed is a short film centered around fixed bike riding. This project came about by fellow filmmakers wanting to explore what it looks like for females to find their space in places heavily dominated by males. As always, we recommend checking out this episode on the blog so that you can watch the full project and get context into everything that we discuss on this episode. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being here today. We really appreciate it. It's so nice to finally meet you. Thank you for having me on. Well, your primary role is an editor, correct? 100%. Yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last like 14 years, working for myself. Okay. Yeah, awesome. But you directed and produced this. So what made you kind of want to take this project on as like your baby, if you will? Um, I guess, well, I knew the talents. I knew the girls and they had carved this quite amazing space in Melbourne um, through their passion and love of fixed gear cycling. And it was... At the time, fixed gear cycling in Melbourne was quite heavily male-dominated. And so it was kind of, to be honest, our industry filmmaking. And I thought, actually, this is a prime opportunity to create space in both, you know, the cycling scene and the film industry for females and just give us a, a moment to kind of have a message that we wanted to tell. So that was kind of how I got involved with it. Um, and then I, you know, writing up the story and interviewing the girls was like, made me realize that the message to tell was very universal. We could replace, you know, fixed gear cycling with any passion or hobby and it would still be, you know, a global message of just like finding people you connect with and just doing things that you love. So that's kind of how I got on board with it and, you know, developed the story. That's amazing. I actually, I'm pretty unfamiliar with like fixed gear riding and I don't know if any of our listeners are. So if they are, would you be able to just kind of give us a little bit of a lowdown on what fixed gear cycling is? Of course, it's basically just cycling without brakes. So you got to be fit. You got to have some pretty incredible thighs. And Absolutely not. Just, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't have it. And then I started it and I got it. So um, no way. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's a fun um Former cycling, people think it's very risque. It's more street versus kind of like road and, you know, mountain. Um, and it was actually originally the first um, kind of professional cycling sport in like Japan. So that's where they do the fixed gear cycling. And the chap that started it and kind of invented the wheel, so to speak, he actually did it because he felt using brakes made cycling, he made you as a cyclist, lazier. So if you didn't have brakes, mm. you'd be working a lot harder and become a lot fitter. So, mm. and it's true. I will give them that. Okay. So, you know, you kind of had this passion behind it, um, which is, wasn't maybe initially there, but now you, you um, sort of have this passion behind fixed uh, cycling. But from that initial sort of spark, um, how did the, uh, the project then come to be? What was the process of sort of getting it started, if you will? Um, it was kind of two elements, to be honest. It was, also, it was the talent that were, you know, meeting up and hanging out and kind of exploring the space within themselves. And then also around the same time, there was like a new wave of uh, 
tech coming out with wireless rigs and that was pretty new in Australia and so we were really keen as filmmakers to explore this technology and and it was just a great way to do that especially like um, motion rigs and so you know we have moving bikes and it was just a fun experience learning how to use it all fun and challenging so yeah it was that it was the technology and just that that moment in time in the cycling scene so it was just all met that right moment and the DP I worked with is really dear friend of mine we met when we were both working on a feature film um built quite a strong collaborative relationship and so he was really interested as well so I think it was just timing was right and it was summer so weather perfect I I'm curious so if editing is typically like your day-to-day what you're doing um what was your I imagine you've been around productions quite a bit, so you've had experience in this area. Um, is this something that was like new for you, or you've you've directed before? Um, so, as an editor, like I started out as an assistant editor, and you know, worked under quite senior male editors, and they had locked themselves their whole career inside a very dark room, and had become at times quite bitter and uh, hard to work with, and. From there, I was just like, there's no way that I'm going to be that editor. So I really pushed myself onto directors who wanted me involved in the creative process, the pre-production, and really getting my ideas behind the story. Because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's going to have the final say and craft the narrative. And so that's how I got into, uh, you know, a little bit of pre-production and also just kind of shadowing directors to see how they did it. Um, and then that's how I was happy to jump on board as, you know, directing this piece because I just didn't want to hand it over to anyone because I wasn't sure what story they would tell. Um, and I think definitely having experience as an editor and then jumping on board as like directing, you've got a lot, you've got different knowledge to a standard director. You can kind of see how an edit's going to unfold in the edit suite, you know, what shots you need. And you really, really do invest a lot of time in pre-production because you know as an editor that is what is going to save you. And so I think having all that combined knowledge is what pushed me into directing this and directing it successfully as well. So, yeah. Yeah, such good insight. It's so true. Yeah. What would you say as an editor, some of those things in pre-production that you talked about, um, just having that knowledge what would you say some of the the differences or the different mindsets you had in pre-production were um, just coming from that editing background? Um, I'd have to say, like, from the start, you have to know the importance of your piece and know what you want to say. And you need to know that before you start shooting. You know, with technology today, and it seems endless, we're all shooting in digital formats. And, you know, when I started we're using a lot more film. So you had a very controlled director and DPs and you'd only roll when you really knew that you had that shot. But now people just keep rolling and rolling. And so in post, it's just becoming an arduous process of going through endless amounts of pressures just because a director didn't have the confidence perhaps or they just didn't put that time in pre-production. And there's a famous saying of we'll find it in the suite. And I mean... (laughs) I refuse to hear that anymore because you just can't. If you haven't done it from the outset, you just will not find that story and it will not be the story you want to tell because you're forcing it because you just thought you could just, you know, 
start running before you, you know, walk sort of thing, so to speak. So I think that is the biggest insight and what I took away from editing and into um, my process about how I approach this particular film. I guess continuing on pre-production, did you have, um, did you have a producer alongside of you? Was that also you? Um, what was your, your pre-production uh, team and process? Yeah, well, it was just me. I mean, it was all self-funded. We didn't have time to go and try and get um, funding for this particular um, piece. And I think that just, you know, taking a little bit of a segue here is that the biggest issue is that we were shooting on public roads and <clears throat> in ways that potentially weren't as safe as people would like so we had no chance of getting permits and that sort of thing so we just jumped on board and did it so you know sometimes when you're doing a creative piece you just have to run that way versus kind of the the traditional correct way Um, that's for forgiveness not for yeah permission yeah Yeah. (laughs) i'm always surprised how did we not get on this um so yeah I did the all the pre-production and because I was am a cyclist I you know could do a lot of the recce's a lot of the scene setups I spent a lot of time behind a stills camera um mapping it all out you know and really working on what time of days we wanted to shoot what locations look best so there was a lot of time just cycling around the city and, you know, storyboarding it scene by scene as well in terms of what would unfold in that scene and what would look look good. Um, and because we were shooting in such a variety of uh, locations, we had to make sure that the cameras would work, the lenses, and that's when my DP came in and really, you know, took what the materials I was creating and, you know, brought them to life really. So I think, yeah, I did that pre-production and, you know, I... I some people would say you overcooked it, but I think that it was necessary and it's important if you can still do that. I know often we're time poor in our industry now because everything's so like immediate and people want it now, now, now. But um, when you have the opportunity, that would be like my biggest takeaway. How how long was the pre-production then? Do you remember? Uh, I think I probably spent about six weeks. Yeah. And then like just, did, you know, obviously chatted with the talent and found their stories and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was was good. I imagine, uh, well, were the talent friends of yours, people that you'd known? If you're a fixed cyclist yourself, um, are these people that you knew being in the community or no? Yeah, I kind of knew them. I knew a couple of them quite well and then um, others just through through them and then over the process of the time we got to know each other really well so it was that that was a great experience as well to meet you know to continue meeting people in the in the scene what was it that sort of made you select the dp for this project um i think it was definitely our relationship we had a really strong respectful relationship and you know a director always likes to work with particular DPs and particular editors, and I can really understand that because you have to have a relationship where you trust each other and you listen. Um, and he was keen and he believed in the story and was really keen to create some nice imagery. And the industry is pretty quiet over summer, so that worked for us as well. But definitely I think it was our relationship. 
you had a friendship with him before. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Cool. We met on a feature film that we we're both working That's on. That's right. You mentioned that. And yeah. And then just um, carried on from there, really working on, we've worked on quite a few creative pieces. Some have been successful and others not so much, but I think it's a great way, a great opportunity where you've got no one holding you accountable to just try anything. I think that's mm. so key in our industry, no matter how long you've been working as a filmmaker. I think just keep trying anything and find those people that are willing to take those risks with you and support you. And it's totally fine if it doesn't work out. Like it's so so many things are shot every day and they just don't see the light of day because that just didn't work and that's fine. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that. So sw- switching gears into production, you know, what was that whole process like if, starting from the beginning? How long was the shooting? How long was shooting, if you will? Um, so shooting, we could only really shoot over weekends just because of availability of people. And then also um, we were tied to how long we could hire the gear for. So that was like a big thing. So we just did blocks. And I think we shot probably maybe over six weekends just doing particular blocks with whatever um, equipment we had at that time so the setup was about four different cameras so we kind of just made sure we got what we needed to with each camera when we had it um and yeah and so that's kind of mapped it all out and and got it done and you know we shot a lot of scenes that didn't make it into the edit and that that's fine you know two shots in and you're looking through a monitor and you're like this is not working it's completely fine but just roll with it um yeah and so that's that was kind of the other shooting blocks and then for a lot of the moving footage, it was a very expensive convertible loaded up with a ton of gear and motion rigs attached to it. So um, that's how we got around that one. Yeah, yeah, on the road. And it was, that's, yeah, that's, I'm still shocked that no one pulled us over or, you know. <laughs> yeah. When you have a rig that big, you can kind of just maybe get away with it. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hard to well, know. Hard to know. Yeah, you just got to take that risk. Absolutely. I'm curious then, you mentioned, um, you know, your camera body rentals. Um, was that a, a creative choice? Like the the camera, the lenses that you guys shot on, was that a, a creative choice between you and the DP? Yeah, yeah. I definitely took his guidance because he, um, you know, had obviously a lot more experience in that. And he loves experimenting with different lenses. So that was a big thing as well. Like what camera bodies can we have to use with these lenses? And he also... You know, as we do, he had hired him a case of lenses for another job. So we just piggybacked on that and used those ones as well. So, um, yeah, that was the main thing. But the one of the rig cameras was a red, which is hard. They're hard. You know, the technology has gotten better, but they're a hard camera to work with. And so that mm. was kind of we had to match the look mm. of the red versus matching everything else and prime lenses and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. I, that's interesting that you say that. Um, I wonder even if your knowledge as an editor comes in there as well. I have worked with red footage and yeah, it is, it's difficult. It's kind of, uh, it can be annoying to work with sometimes. Yeah. And <laughs> low that. light and that sort of thing. It's just, mm-hmm. you, know, you can see the issues we're having. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can't light outdoor scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of this is outdoor. 
um, which yes. I was curious about as well, too. You must have had to be um, specific times of day because of it, most of it's natural lighting. Yeah, 100%. So we really banked on those golden hours. Uh, sure. Shoot times are kind of from like 5 a.m. to maybe 8.30 and then break and then come back in the evening. So, wow. yeah, that, um, summer in Australia is pretty bright. So we, yeah, couldn't couldn't use the majority of the day, but... Yeah, and that also came down to the pre-production of just making sure that all those locations worked at that time of day and were they the best locations. So it's definitely, I got to know how, the orientation of the sun pretty quickly. Mm-hmm, I bet you did. <laughs> I imagine with a, a schedule like that, there was probably, that was probably difficult to navigate with people's, you know, regular schedules and committing both mornings and evenings and you kind of got this weird chunk in the middle of the day. Yeah, I think that the talent, they all really were just keen to be involved. So they're so um, willing to just, you know, work with what I needed. Obviously, I had to work around their you know, work commitments. One of them was a nurse. There was a lot of shift work and sort of things. So um, that, that was, they were fine. I mean, they're really fit. So that was one thing I, I was always concerned about how tired they would get because they had to cycle fast, but I was always like astounded at how fit they were. And the crew again, I mean, I think you just know that if you're going to help um, or work on creative pieces, you have to be, you have to believe in the project and believe that it's going to have like benefit for yourself at some point. Um, which sounds selfish, but I think that's what you get out of it at the end of the day. Um, and the crew. Yeah, I mean, every crew gets snappy sometimes at each other or tired and that sort of thing, but you just massage those dynamics. And then again, that's where the DP and I have such a good relationship that we can have that kind of like butt heads, but also support each other and talking to other crew and if they're not quite working to what we need. Yeah, yeah that's Jay so and I have never butt heads before. So, oh, uh, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> never, never. We know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so back to production a little bit. I am curious, though, like this is something I was thinking about as I was watching some of those scenes with the bikers. I thought, oh, my goodness, that must have been so challenging for you guys to film. Were there any sort of big challenges that you had to overcome? Wouldn't say it was challenging. I think, again, we had thought it through. Uh, Definitely, like, the shoot ratio was so poor. I mean, once we were in the edit suite, it's just like I think I used every usable shot, like especially with, like, wireless-controlled rigs and if they, you know, stop working or, you know, change direction or you lose focus on a moving, you know, bikes move and then focus shifts. I had an amazing focus puller. It was incredible. Um, so that was the most challenging part. Uh, driving. I did a lot of the driving and I hated getting too close to the cyclists so that, but they wanted me to keep getting closer. Um, and yeah, I mean, we lost some cyclists, like they, you know, would go in one direction and would be pushed into another direction. And obviously that would take a bit of time to kind of reconnect with them. Um, we had, we did have them on headphones, so I could talk to them about direction, that sort of thing. But in one scene, um, their phone fell out of their pocket and, like, the headphones got caught up all in the tyres and we were, like, down on, like, a 70K, five la- four-lane um, highway or, like, 
like, yeah, was a, yeah, not a like 100k highway, but just a small one in the city. And so there are definitely challenges like that. Um, you know, really angry drivers, uh, people staring out the window, like you cannot hide from like, you know, people's faces. So that was a big thing. Um, but overall, it was, it was pretty good. I think because we're able to shoot so much, we were able to massage any challenges pretty quickly and work out what was, you know, what was usable nice. and what wasn't. Do you say, you said you were shooting on a, a car rig, is that correct? Yeah, like a, it was one of them was a mobby rig. So that was handheld. So that was pretty, actually, that was quite challenging because, you know, you needed your um, camera op to have some decent muscles because that's a big rig to hold up. And, you know, you've got to get the timing right because, you know, the pterodactyl, if that, once that connects, it's all go and you've got to make sure that that cyclist is moving. And yeah, so it was a lot of moving parts in that sense. I think when you're in the heat of it and you're a little bit naive, you kind of just run with it. Yeah. Yeah. We just shot something. I directed something over the summer, um, this past summer and JJ shot it and it was a biking sequence and, I remember by the end of it, Jay's like, okay, I don't have any more in me because, you know, he's holding this rig and I'm like, yeah, but the, the, the dynamic, I got, I need a couple more. He's like, I don't have much more in me. I mean, he's incredibly strong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's weak, but (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) But it was just, it's a challenge, you know, just trying to um, figure out all of those moving parts and get them to flow. It's, it is such a challenge, I thought. So going into the editing phase, I'm sure that was exciting for you, being that that's primarily what you do. Um, was there certain aspects of the edit that you were most excited about? Um, I was definitely, well, I knew on set, I knew when I'd captured my opening shot and my closing shot. So I think that's what made me excited because I was like, if I've got, those two shots from there, I can just like get a solid story. And so, yeah, I was, I was excited. I was, the footage was stunning and beautiful. I was really, um, you know, I shouldn't say surprised, but I guess I was at the time that we captured so much great stuff. Um, but yeah. And it was an edit that it didn't have a time frame, So I could really just sit with it and take my time on it and, share it with people and get feedback and that sort of thing. Um, I worked with a really good friend of mine who's a director uh, and she gave me some good guidance on it and helped massage the story. Um, And because it was a VO, I was able to, you know, I did have the opportunity if I wanted to go and do any pickups with the talent of their story, but it turned out that I just, I didn't need to. Um, And that would have been a concern of it sounding too scripted. Um, but yeah, I talked about the shoot ratio, which is terrible. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I mean, it was, yeah. So. What do you edit on? I currently edit on Premiere, but I do Final Cut. I've done um, Resolve and Avid. So predominantly Premiere, just because it's the most universal at the moment in our industry and, you know, sharing files and content especially if you've got like any animation or 3d work happening with it that's kind of been the best way um forward but yeah i mean as an editor i think how you you know how good you are as an editor isn't what how good you can cut in software i think you should be able to learn any software it's like your ability to craft a story and um and tell that story 
and realize, you know, then the editor is kind of secretly the director at times. Like you, you have that power and position to like you sort of, you know, a director will be like, I want this way, but you have the opportunity to say, I think that's better this way or consider something else. And you can really sit there and play with that uh, narrative. And I think that's, that's one of the most powerful things of being an editor. And a lot of people have said to me, why don't you direct? I said, because I do already. Mm. Yes. Wow, that's, that's the tagline right there. <laughs> yeah, I know, straight up. <laughs> We're about to use that as a soundbite online. <laughs> I, w- I was literally talking to somebody this morning about, um, yeah, directing and editing. They, they feel like they're right there next to each other. There's like equal mm-hmm. amounts of persuasion when it comes to the, the end result there. Um, Absolutely. That's very cool. Do you have like, um, I mean, we're talking to an editor, so we got we to gotta get niche down for a second and just... I know. <laughs> I know. What's your hot take? I mean, there's a lot of uh, controversy around um, like Premiere right now. I feel like it crashes so much. There's a lot of people moving to DaVinci. I know. I've what's been your, seeing that a bit too. What's yeah. your hot take on editing software in 2023? <laughs> um, I think that all software is hard. Hard work, it depends on your system, it depends on your workflow and that sort of thing. I'm an offline editor. And so I, I work with proxies. I'm still that old school. You know, I've seen editors try and view 5K footage at like an eighth of the resolution. And I'm like, it's ridiculous. Like, what, what are you doing? Um, so I find it, even if I'm working in DaVinci, I still use proxies because I just find it so much faster and I work quickly. And so that, you know, I'd rather put in the overnight render of making proxies just to kind of work a lot faster. Um, and I think Premiere, every update they do is, yeah, it's like they think they're making it easier, but they're just making it harder to find things, presets. And don't fuck with something if it isn't broken. Yes. Adobe. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. yes. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I don't think they're making anything um, better. And I think DaVinci is a really interesting piece of software. You know, it's free to a degree, especially if you just want to edit offline on it. Um, and now they've introduced the kind of sharing, like you can work on one project as a team. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But again, you still need proxies. You still need local drives and I think that's where editing you know without some ridiculous super internet we're still going to have that basic foundation of a, a hard drive you're going to have local rushes and and that's that's how it is but uh I, I don't ever get too caught up in the software I just have to know that I can yeah make a story. do you do do you do a lot of like okay so when I would I, I used to be an office PA and when I would drop, I'd be the one to have to stay with the, the DIT after and then freaking bring it at late after the shoots over to the assistant editor a lot of the time. Um, do you do like night edits or is it like, hey, I'll just start the next morning because the assistant editor, I think, was probably making those proxies. Is that correct? Yeah, they definitely 100% were. So if they can't... Um if they can't shoot proxies, so sometimes they will be able to um, at the same time. And if they don't have an assistant to uh, create proxies, then I'll do it. Definitely 
Uber is really a big part of my life. I get a lot of Uber deliveries. People probably mm-hmm. wonder what the hell is going on. These small boxes always arriving. Yeah, um, I, can, I can believe that. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't, the PA is, or sometimes it's a runner, but if we're, if they're wrapping late, they just always chuck it in an Uber now. <sighs> yeah. Shoot, I should have known that when I was an yes. office PA. I should have been like, can you just deliver it? <laughs> Does, can you deliver packages with Uber here? I don't know that I've I don't heard of know. That. I don't know if I don't know. I maybe. Maybe that's an Australia thing. It's a Fact big check. thing here now. Like they just it's a specific like uh service that they offer, like a package. No one. way. Okay, yeah. maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't think yeah. they do that here. That's that's interesting. The music in Fix on Fixed was really beautiful. Uh yeah. what was your selection process like for that? Um, I was really lucky. I had a um, really great relationship with an audio studio called Soundfly in Melbourne. And um, Josh and David were more than happy to kind of take it on and work with me on creating um, the music tracks for them. They're both quite uh, one-on musicians in Melbourne as well. So they had a both came up to it with um, unique ideas and different angles. So they were fantastic to work with. And so these are custom tracks? Yeah, yes, the custom tracks awesome. that they made. And I think they even, like, released the album on iTunes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was like, oh, good on you guys. Um, so, yeah, and they were really happy to jump on board. I'd worked a lot with them on um, more kind of uh, advertising and working with um, clients overseas. So it was kind of fun to do something a bit more local and a bit more creative. So Yeah, that's awesome. I think it gave them a bit of... Um, exposure as well into like a different uh group of filmmakers so uh, predominantly they worked in advertising and um larger like more larger doco features um so yeah i think that they were keen to get you know on board with the so win-win for everybody yeah 100 percent. absolutely so then how was the film distributed so i mean to be honest, I never really thought about that. I never thought about, I thought it would be nice if, you know, a thousand people watch this film. I was like, that would be incredible. And hopefully there are people that are, you know, in different parts of the world. So, but I was really lucky that the talent, and I really capitalised on this, already had their own audience. Um, they were heavily involved and, in, you know, not only the biking community, but, you know, one was in photography um one was a big reddit user and I was like what the fuck is reddit so then I found out pretty swiftly what reddit was and yeah and then so that kind of is how it spread um we got picked up by a couple of different local um blogs and magazines so they were keen to to have it but I think um that was the power of the internet just kind of spread it around and and that's how it reached such a massive audience I mean yeah yeah I just I didn't think it and then as you know the views ticked up I was like wow this is really getting getting some traction um and just you know the feedback from predominantly females all around the world I think the youngest one was like a five-year-old who was just learning to cycle and you know it was really they found it quite empowering and to see that you know yeah you do have the opportunity to follow any passion that you you want if you just as long as you find like-minded people and have support um so yeah I was was extremely lucky was it just been picked up and just thrown around that was that's amazing I was um doing a job and 
uh, Shanghai a year or so later. And um, at this stage, I had traveled the world through um, a couple of film festivals and a creative I was working with over there was chatting about he was a cyclist and how he'd seen this film um, on some female cyclists in Melbourne and that I was from Melbourne and did I know them? And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I made that film. So it really did touch so many people. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What so, a cool experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it was, it was that, that was really lucky. I mean, the internet, thank you. You do have some good at times and just film festivals was the main one. And, you know, the film festivals, it's worth that 25 bucks just to kind of chuck your film in there and, and see, see if we've picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. I, I'm so happy that there was just such a solid uh, reception to the, the film. By the way, before I kind of dive into that, how long ago was this made? I actually didn't look at the year. Yeah, I think it was like seven years ago. Okay. So yeah, okay. it's a um old. It feels old. It feels dated. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. It's awesome. I was no, curious. I, I wouldn't have guessed it. It's me it, neither. It holds up really, really well. Very much so. Oh, Very much so. Thank you. And this just goes to show like it is all about story. You know, it really is all about story because that that piece, as you had mentioned, the reception to it was um really something that was special. And that piece resonates with people still today. I saw an email, um, you and Amanda had talked a little bit about how so many films are created and never seen or like the, the network is just not there to, to get it in front of people. Um, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big part of our industry and it's the saddest part, I think. I think if we think about how many filmmakers we know locally, let alone globally, and all that content that has been created. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's one thing to make a film, be it a short or a feature or, you know, feature it, but it's another thing uh, to get it distributed. It's a whole next step, another job. And we all know the exhaustion that we feel when we've made something, especially if it's a passion project. But then to think that, wow, now I've got to get it out in front of people and how hard that is, then, yeah, I think that is part of our industry where we lack support. Um, you know, even with top film festivals around the world, if those films aren't picked up by a distributing, you know, a, a company, they're just shelved. And so there's no way to see it. And, and that's what I think is very frustrating uh, for our industry. I think streaming services are great now. They're obviously picking up a lot more content that perhaps have never made it to, you know, the cinema or onto like standard public free TV. Um, and we're definitely, you know, the days of DVDs and VHS is long gone. Uh, so I think that, yeah, the streaming services, they are doing a great job, but I think there could be more support out there, in particular, you know, helping people make it in ways into those streaming services, networking, meeting people, and just the promotion of work. I think um, I'm originally from New Zealand, and so uh, New Zealand on Air, which is a like broadcasting company, they did a series where they funded a lot of short um, web series, but that didn't stop there. From the funding, then they just they helped the directors and producers into distribution and also hosted them online. So I think that was a really good model to see how you can access con local content in particular and um, and have eyes in front of it. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's I, I don't know the answer, but it's just a, 
real a really big issue and especially yeah, for it's females a, it's a very a very gray area i feel like and that's like the one area of filmmaking that is so hard to almost self-educate yourself on especially a lot of young filmmakers where you're introduced into the film industry uh in a different way now where you can create the path for yourself or or whatnot but that when it comes to the actual distribution time it's so hard to just know how to do that and it's not like an exciting area that people talk about online it's like one of those things that you can get an industry experience and by meeting the right people and having those conversations, but it's otherwise very difficult to gain that knowledge. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's challenging. And you know, it's like selling, it's like you're a salesperson. Oh. I think that's the last thing a filmmaker wants to be as a salesperson. The, yes. That's my and, least favorite part. Yeah. And so, and here you are after the, you know, really, well sometimes arduous and other times fun experience of creating something and then you're just on the ground trying to introduce yourself cold calling trying to get meetings just to you know get someone in front of your content and uh yeah and and I've seen it with brands who've made features and in the end they've, they've kind of given up because it's just verging on burnout like the, the expectation and then to get like someone on board to do it for you is really costly, which often we can't can't afford. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been awesome. I've loved chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great to meet you guys and yeah. Yeah. Shoot so the, good. Talk about the industry. Yeah, let's go. Shoot the shit, baby. Question. Yeah, yeah, you can go for it. Um, where can people find you? Like, follow your work and and see what you're making. Like, yeah, just on my website, rachelharding.com is where I I post my um content that I'm working on and creating. So that's that's place to go and check it out. We do ask our guests. We ask them who you would like to hear on the podcast. So who is somebody that you, um, either some work that you really admire or a filmmaker that you'd like to hear on the podcast? Oh, wow. Oh, oh my gosh. On the spot. <laughs> if you could get him, I'd go Jarvis Cocker. He has a ridiculously amazing history in both music and film. Amazing. And, uh, as an art school, uh, he did, you know, art school, and now he's got into a lot more of film and sound design, that sort of thing. That's Ooh. a far reach. So I'd definitely be interested in his thoughts on the whole industry. Um, and, yeah. you know, he's gone through from the 70s, really. I, I would Come say on. that. All right. You'll find him. Track him down. You'll find him. Track him down. <laughs> Have a chat. He loves a chat. You never know. <laughs> you never know. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to meet you and spend some time with you. Thank you guys so much. Absolutely. I really love this idea of the podcast and what you guys are doing. And, you know, the fact that you can just reach out to anyone anywhere in the world. It's great. I love it. I have gained some insight just talking to you. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you guys. No, I'm glad I, I could uh, offer something I've learned. Say. I've learned some things today, straight up. It, you are great. You gave us such good, such good things to work with. I'm, I value your um, thoughts. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Featuring Filmmakers is made possible by Harvest Film Company. To dive into content about these projects that we discuss, you can go to our blog on featuringfilmmakers.com 
where we have everything laid out with behind the scenes, the original project discussed, and additional episodes there. So check us out at featuringfilmmakers.com. Thanks so much for listening. Love you. Bye.